Lord, we praise you for forgiveness. We are grateful for what you have done to pay the cost of our sin, to give us life in the name of our Savior because of the work that he has done as our great high priest, as the final sacrifice for sin. We rejoice together as an assembly of believers. And for those who know not Christ, we pray in their behalf that you will aid them to not misread the text that is before us today, but to come to the light of salvation that is in Christ alone and that is free and complete. For those of us who know you as Savior, may we do well under the Word. May we respond to the teaching of the Spirit. May you direct us to accomplish what we should together today in our in progress of growth. And Lord, may we build one another up in the faith as we discuss these matters. Thank you for the Word that you've given And we pray that you will meet now with your church and feed us upon that word. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Imagine that you are very thirsty. Someone you do not trust offers you a glass of clear liquid and says, here, drink this. Do you drink it? The most universally accessible and available drink on the planet is the clear liquid that we call water. But there are other clear liquids that are harmful, or at least terribly disgusting, were we to drink them. We've lost our visual here, but uh, we can think of water and look at its molecular makeup and compare it with another liquid that is clear, and the molecular makeup is very different. So they look the same to the eye, but they're not the same thing. So we'd have to ask our rather sketchy person some questions before we tasted the drink, certainly before we chugged it down. But in a manner of speaking, true Christianity has a specific molecular makeup, which like water has three elements. The first element is truth. We know, believe, and trust certain truths that God has revealed in His Word. His living Word, Jesus Christ, His written Word, the Scriptures. Christianity is truth and the embrace of that truth. It is secondly, the second element is affections. New affections that are consistent with a regenerate heart. So a a true believer has warm desires for God, for His Word, His people, His mission, and His home. The third element is the life of ethical conformity to God's revealed will. A life that produces the fruit of the Spirit. This is the genuine thing. And you cannot take one away from the other. A so-called Christianity that picks and chooses what it wants to believe about the Bible is not Christianity. The so-called Christianity that fusses over every theological point of orthodoxy but has no heart for God, no love in the soul to see Him in His glory, no passion to reach the world for Christ, it's not Christianity. And a so-called Christianity third element that permits followers to live in unrepentant sin to live comfortably in disobedience to God's call to holiness is not Christianity. It may go by that name, but it's not the real thing. Genuine spirit-baptized faith in Christ always involves a believer's active pursuit of moral purity and godliness. It always involves the active pursuit of moral purity and godliness. That is part of the molecular makeup, if you will. True doctrine, new affections for the things of God, and obedience to Christ, that is the genuine thing. Eden Baptist Church, what truth we've considered in our journey through the book of Hebrews. 
What exalted truth we've considered. We've seen that Jesus Christ is the radiance of God's glory. The exact imprint of His divine nature. We have seen that Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God. The One who is with God and is hailed as God. We have learned that Jesus is our great and final High Priest. That He offered up His body and shed His lifeblood on the cross as the final and fully sufficient sacrifice to atone for the sins of His people. And now the risen Christ, of whom we have sung this morning, is seated on heaven's throne where He will reign forever and ever. This is our Savior. These are the truths that are revealed to us. The things we could never discover on our own, but what God has shown to be the case. And if these truths do not warm and stir our hearts with awe, with joy, and with love for Christ, it may well be because there's no life in us. And that third element, if we have embraced the truth about Jesus and thus have deep affections for Him, we will pursue a life of obedient moral purity. That will be the pursuit of our lives. To live holy lives before Him. Lives that are transformed and Christ-like. Yes, we will continue to sin. We will struggle spiritually. But true Christianity transforms and purifies the daily life of the believer. Anything else is not the genuine article. And so Hebrews chapter 13 is a most fitting and natural postscript to the book. There are people who have looked at Hebrews 13 and said it doesn't fit at all. It must have been written by someone else. It must have been attached later. But I think the reason is because they're not seeing this third element and how vital it is. The book is heavy with truth, revealed truth, and we rejoice. It is certainly calibrated to warm our affections for Christ and to keep us devoted to Him. But this 13th chapter is most fitting for it brings in that third element of what will you do? As you hear it in Joshua chapter 1, this is the word of the Lord so that you will do it. So that it will change how you live your life. And so here we are in chapter 13. The plane is landed by the pilot, so to speak, addressing now the daily lives of his readers and the ethical demands that rest on them as redeemed believers in Christ. Today we'll consider five moral imperatives we must and will aspire to honor as followers of the exalted Christ. They're given to us in this order. We'll take them in this order and just look at them one by one, fairly simply. But the first, obviously, is to love God's people. Verse 1, let brotherly love continue. In view here, by way of meaning, is the the love expressed and the love extended between brothers and sisters in Christ. The author both commends them and warns them with this simple sentence. They are, I think they were demonstrating love for one another. That's why he says continue. But it's also, isn't it a warning? Don't let it stop. May that brotherly love for one another continue. They were a discouraged church. And under the pressures of persecution, love for one another can wane very easily. I mean, just think of the psychology of it. If you're dealing every day with the temptation of walking away from Christ, your love for the people that you are tempted to walk away from is going to dissipate. It's going to be weak. So he says, don't let that happen. Continue to love one another. Don't fall away from the living God. And not falling away from the living God will look like this. You will continue on in love for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. What is the ground of that love? God, who is love, unites us together as His children in union with His eternal Son so that in Christ we form a spiritual family that is grounded in God's love for us. We love as siblings because Jesus loved us as outcasts. And Jesus taught us, did He not? This 
love, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is to be the characteristic relationship that we enjoy together and the grounding of it is Jesus' love for us. In the pursuit of this love, thirdly, in the pursuit of this love, I've never met a Christian family that does not struggle to love one another. Struggle in the sense of finding it hard at times, but also struggle in the sense of staying with it. Loving people you hardly know is one thing. Loving people you know well enough to be offended by them, to disagree with them, to grow irritated by them, to be hurt by them. That takes an entirely different effort, doesn't it? That's the love of the New Testament church. We're not distant, unrelated, hardly know one another people. We're people who are operating in the trenches where we can offend and hurt and disappoint and irritate and the like. Just like any close family. So it is with us in the church. Do we love then? That's the continuing of love. Not just loving those where it comes naturally, but loving where it doesn't come naturally. Loving where it is supernatural. Love in the assembly. The love of brothers and sisters in Christ is a choice to protect, to encourage, and minister to one another, even when doing so proves hard relationally. Love God's people. Secondly, welcome strangers, verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. We'll look at the four uh, thereby a little bit later. But first of all, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. The author poetically moves in the Greek text from Philadelphia, the love of brothers, to Philoxenia, the love of strangers. In English, we borrow the Greek word xenophobia. What do we mean by that? You might hear that once in a while, xenophobia, literally fear of strangers. We use it to describe people and policies that are unfair or hateful toward immigrants or migrant workers or people of other ethnicities, something like that. Xenophobia, the fear of unknown people is how we use that word. The Christian family of faith is oriented in exactly the opposite direction. Toward philoxenia, the love of strangers. Now, we, we do need to set this in its context. It'll be helpful for us to understand what the author's saying to those that were receiving this message, which are in a very different world than are we. But inns that housed travelers in that day were no place for Christians. One would wonder if they were a place for human beings, but certainly not for Christians. Inns commonly served as brothels. There were some ancient writers you can read, and they would say, We're not really sure what the difference is. Many were flea-infested. One writer I I read, uh, ancient text, was saying, can anyone tell me where there's an inn that doesn't have fleas? Travelers were subjected to heightened risk of rape, of theft, and even kidnapping if they stayed at an inn. Add to this the amazing Roman road system. It's it's a wonder to our very day as people crisscross that known world on roads that were amazing features of ability. Engineering, that's the word I'm looking for. (laughs) And you put that together, that road system, with the command of Jesus to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. And so what you had is believers were obedient to the call of Christ, and as this road system carried them throughout that known world, 
There were traveling Christians everywhere. Traveling pastors, traveling evangelists, Christians moving from place to place and to identify with another assembly and the like. So with no internet, with no telephone, most information reliant on word of mouth that would travel fairly slowly from place to place, Christians would pass through towns all the time seeking lodging from people they didn't know. I don't know you. You don't know me. But we know Jesus. That's enough. Take them in. Send them on their way. And many historical sources, Christian as well as pagan, and maybe particularly and most interesting pagan sources, speak of the reputation of Christians of taking in such travelers. They were known to have a network of care for one another this way. Now, love for strangers certainly extends to the lost. But the historical record, and I think then contextually here in this book, the emphasis, a strong emphasis, falls on housing traveling gospel servants along the way. In providing such service, Christians were not naive. They were ridiculed as being naive. These people are so dumb, they'll take in anybody. Any charlatan will come and they'll take them into their home. Really wasn't the case. And as we look at, again, at some of the literature, we see that to be the case. One of the oldest extant documents we have from Christians was called the Didache. And the Didache explains that a traveling evangelist who comes to your home, a minister of the gospel who wants to stay overnight, you bring them in. You trust. And you take care of them. If circumstances are such that they seem to need a second night, think about it, weigh it, but welcome them for a second night. If they ask to stay for a third night, kick them out of your house. That, this is Christian living. They're not idiots. They're saying there's a cause of the gospel here and we will give our lodgings and food to it. Oh, another thing. If this traveler asks for money, don't do it. Don't give them any money. One loaf of bread, that will get them to the next place of lodging. So there was wisdom, there was skill in how this was extended to strangers, but it was a network of care for others, and you never know when that call is coming. Somebody shows up at the door, or you hear the message, and you've got to choose to respond to take them into your home and to care for them there and provide them lodging. Do this, the author says. This is what Christian love does. And the why? For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Undoubtedly a reference to Genesis chapter 18 and Abraham serving the Lord who takes on flesh an identity there in that scene and visits Abraham and he cares for him there. It's undoubtedly the point there. But let's think back even a bit more widely why do we care for strangers? Why would we bring people in? Because every human being is a creature made in God's image. Because every human being is a potential follower of Jesus. Because Christ sends us into the world not to hide from it, but to put our lives on the line to draw others to Christ and to extend the cause of the gospel where we may. We reach out in compassion to strangers because God took us into His family when we were estranged to him. So one of the most direct ways that we can love strangers is to invite someone into our world that we don't know and perhaps the easiest way for us in our setting is to provide a meal in our home for someone we don't know very well, if at all. One of the sources of that are those who would visit in our church. Why not? Why would we not extend our home to someone that visits among us, or perhaps to neighbors or new acquaintances. To extend hospitality to strangers would be one way that the gospel changes our normal selfish orientation. 
on occasion. We even have an opportunity as a church to be pretty close to where these Hebrew believers were and to welcome into our homes those who travel in ministry of the gospel. We've had that opportunity through the years. It's a different world. It's not an easy, as hard as it was then, it's much easier now. And it's a rare case for us to meet missionaries coming into our city who don't know someone else in our city and many times relatives or lifelong friends. And so they'll stay there. We don't often have to put people up, but we get the opportunity here and there. Reminds me of a mission trip that we took to New Jersey some years ago. And I spent the week with several men from our church living in the home, being cared for in the home by uh, members of the church that we were serving. And we brought a, a sizable group of people, and this church said, we're not putting them in an inn, uh, but we're going to take them into our homes. The extension of care for us as strangers was, was memorable. Um, I had a son that was, really got ill on that trip. He just happened to be staying with a doctor who just took care of him like he was in a hospital. It was amazing. But in the home that I was in, sharing with several men, the family that we were with had never done this before. They'd never taken anybody into their home that they didn't know. And we're coming as absolute strangers to their home. And the first thing they did, it was beautiful. They took us all as a group to their refrigerator. And they opened the door and they said, here's what's in it, it's all yours. Take anything you want whenever you want. That might have been unnecessary. It might have been a little naive. You should have looked at the guys that were there, and they might have thought twice about that. But I don't think any of us ever went in the fridge on our own. We didn't need to. They made meals and did a wonderful job. But what we could see as we lived with them, this is the first time they'd ever done this, and they loved it. There was a joy they'd not known before, and it was a joy that was shared on our side as we looked at them and watched them. Giving themselves their lodgings, their food, their time, their attention, and knowing that all of it was part of a partnership in the gospel. It was a beautiful thing. I have no doubt they've done that since. And boy, do we live together like family. One of our guys was messing around with the kids in the living room and he was standing on top of the hassock, the, the, the foot stand on the, and just about to jump off like Superman when the wife and mom walked around the corner and caught him there. Uh, we were just family. We were just living like family. But think of that as we think of strangers. It's not just those that we know. It's those that we've never met or those that we know so little. Abraham extended hospitality to the Lord himself, verse 2 reminds us. Now, I don't think the idea is like extend hospitality to strangers because you too might luck out and it's actually an angel. I don't, that's not what he's saying. It's remember every time you meet a stranger, it is an appointment from God. He makes no mistakes. So supply the needs of strangers as you're able and you will walk with the God who found you and who took you in by grace alone. Thirdly, identify with the persecuted. Verse 3, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. Remember those who are in prison I don't think that's a call for evangelism in correctional facilities, as important as such work is. But contextually, it's a call to remember believers incarcerated for their faith or who have in some other way suffered mistreatment. Remember chapter 10 and verse 34? You identified with those imprisoned and you yourselves had your belongings plundered by persecutors. So he's talking about the imprisoned who in that day were dependent for food and for warmth, if not clothing, on people outside the prison. Prison didn't provide that. You had to have somebody out there who knew to bring you food and to keep you warm. You're to be those people. 
So the point is, do not let people suffering persecution in prison be forgotten. And again, as we look at the ancient writings and the historians, Christians were known to care famously for the imprisoned members of their assemblies, feeding them, spending nights with them at times, laboring to secure their release, not saying you should do this, not saying it's right or wrong, who are we to judge, but sometimes actually paying the bribe to get the person out or to spend the night there with them to to give them some fellowship in the prison. So in that context, Christians were known for this. Even historians that were pagan recognized this. Sometimes they were ridiculed for showing up at dawn to bring things into the prison to those who were, who were incarcerated there. What's the author saying? What does Christian love look like? What does a life changed by the gospel look like? It looks like this. You put yourself in their place. It's not out of sight, out of mind, like Pharaoh's cupbearer with the imprisoned Joseph. This is an important skill for us to develop as believers, to put ourselves in the place of another and to consider what they're facing, what they're going through, and to respond appropriately. So think of this, what's happening within the assembly. What's taking place is there's some people within the assembly who are imprisoned They are out of the assembly by no choice of their own. They've become, in a sense, shut in. And the instruction here is to go to them where they are. If they can't come to the church, to take your fellowship to them. Remember them. Care for them. You're extending love to those that are with you. You're extending love to those who are strangers in this gospel enterprise and you're extending love to those who are separated from you by way of persecution. It's not only imprisonment, but we see there in verse 3 also mistreatment. Those who are mistreated. Don't ignore them. Don't walk away from that. I don't want to get identified with that. I don't want to get drawn into this mistreatment. Go the other direction. Embrace them, love them, support them, care for them. Since, here's the motivation, verse 3, you are also in the body. I don't think that means that you're in the body of the church. I think it's a way of saying you're just as vulnerable to mistreatment as they are. So consider carefully that the physical needs that you would have if you were in their situation and meet those needs. Respond accordingly. You're in the body. You're susceptible to persecution and mistreatment just as they are. The fact that they are suffering and you're not, make the connection and help them out. That's the reasoning. Number four, honor marriage. Honor marriage. Verse four, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. First of all, we see here in the first part of verse four that to honor marriage by respecting the institution. God designed and bequeathed the institution of marriage to mankind for its prosperity. He does not call everyone to this office, but he calls many to it. And every one of us, married, single, widowed, we have a moral responsibility to honor the God-given gift of marriage. It should be held in esteem, it should be held high and honored as a gift from God. In the history of the church, some have disparaged marriage as an evil concession to mankind's weakness, and thus they've elevated celibacy as a superior spiritual choice. For an individual who is so gifted, that may well be the case. That celibacy is the right path, is what is pleasing to God, and is the superior choice for that individual. But this is not the way that we should look at marriage as some sort of concession to the weak, but rather as a gift from the Creator. A major way in which we do this, verse 4, let marriage be held in honor by all, and by the way, underline 
among all, not just among the married, but among all, marriage is to be honored, for, or and, let the marriage bed be undefiled. We are to honor marriage by practicing sexual fidelity. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. That's one way in which we honor marriage. The marriage bed is a euphemism for the sexual relationship between a husband and wife. So when Christ is your Savior, when your home is heaven, you will fight sexual temptation for the rest of your life. Not excuse it as an innocent pleasure or a personal right or simply ignore it. Christian sexual ethics was, is, and will forever be an away game in this world. And it was an away game in the Greco-Roman world. Mistresses, concubines, basically sex slaves living in the home, temple prostitution, these were just commonplace. Similarly, in our day, we must realize that the crowd will always howl, it will always jeer, it will seek to unnerve and intimidate us as prudes and killjoys and fools. But we must never forget two realities as we face that opposition. Number one, the fool is anyone who believes sexual fulfillment and the nurture of a healthy soul is found in illicit sexual activity. That's just a irrational fantasy land. It's not the case. It's not how God designed us to thrive. Our Creator doesn't give us directives in order to make our life miserable, but rather to say, this is what is best. This is for your joy and for my glory. Sexual immorality and adultery are simply a pathway to God's judgment. He warns us of that here. That judgment comes now. It comes in the form of guilt. It comes in the form of shame and sexual disease and unwanted pregnancy and emptiness. But it comes in the future. If we could just imagine it for a moment. It comes in the future when individuals stand before the judgment seat of Christ, before that great white throne, and say in so many words, I went my way. I did it my way. I followed my own ethical plan. And I rejected your word. It will stand before a God who is a consuming fire. An answer for breaking his moral law. So that's the one thing we must remember when we receive this opposition. It comes from the foolish position of thinking that there are no consequences. That this is a path to pleasure and joy. And it's not. Secondly, the fool is anyone who speaks about sexual pleasure who will never know the joys of sex in the context of a lifelong covenantal relationship of fidelity to one mate. They're not speaking from that foundation. Those who ridicule the narrow parameters of our sexual ethics have no idea what God's people have, and they have no idea what God's people enjoy. Certainly, by the grace of God through forgiveness of sin, but then in the establishment of a healthy relationship that honors the Lord and knows what it is to enter this relationship that, in the sense that we are in this for life. The critics don't have that. When they're ridiculing us, they're coming from a different perspective, and they don't even know what they're talking about. It would shock some. It doesn't surprise me in the least, but I just read a survey recently regarding sexual fulfillment indicating that it is very clearly and decisively in favor of those who are in a committed, lifelong marriage. That's where sexual pleasure is found at its greatest level according to those who answer in contrast to those who answered who were part of a who who followed a promiscuous lifestyle now that doesn't mean that's why we do it but it just reminds us the creator knows what he's doing so many one night stands and in disillusionment if not disaster 
but granting that the one-night stand might prove immensely satisfying in the moment, and perhaps more satisfying than the normal rhythms of a married couple, that one-night stand can never begin to match the long obedience in the same direction of a faithful married couple. Never. It just can't touch it. The one-night stand, the years-long affair, the idolatrous worship in front of a glowing screen in a dark room by a dark heart, it's all a cheap substitute for the joy God designs for believing couples. And let us understand this world will not understand. They can't. Now, without question, let me say honestly as well, that believers are broken people with our sin. We're subject to human frailty. We have our challenges, and no one enjoys a perfect relationship on this earth. But in obedience to Christ, as we consider the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that Lordship enters into the bedroom. It enters into the mind and everything that we think about. So, in obedience to Christ, the undefiled bed is one of one who fights against lust. Who fights against pornography in any form. Who fights against entertaining of lustful thoughts. There will be a hedging in every aspect of life against the kind of thinking, the kind of social practice, the kind of orientation to life that might pave the way to commit adultery. The Christian is oriented against all of that. Persisting, standing, fighting, failing, falling, but repenting, getting up again, and fighting on. So let's remember, God will judge sexual immorality and adultery because sexual fidelity within the bonds of lifelong heterosexual relationship is His gift of goodness to us. God will judge sexual immorality and adultery because such activity rejects the glorious designs of the Creator. To commit adultery is to trash the best visible display of the love of Christ for His church and the devotion of the church to Christ known on this planet. We must go a different direction. And we will as the followers of Christ. So let me say it again. In the end, what we're seeing here and what the Scriptures certainly support elsewhere is that the Lordship of Jesus Christ extends to the bedroom. It extends to the thoughts of your mind. It extends to where the eye goes and where the affections take us. There in that fight, we must stand for Christ. We've only got two options. To stay out of the bedroom as you prepare for the day God smiles upon your yet future marriage. Or to give yourself to that relationship. Or, on the other hand, to treat your marriage as a sacred office God gives you to enjoy for His glory as the giver of every good gift. Those are the two options for us as believers. For the one not married, to orient to that day that God would either give you a mate or permit you to stand before Him in eternity saying, well done, good and faithful servant, as a single. Or, those of us who are married, to realize that this is a sacred office that God gives us to enjoy for His glory as the giver of every good gift. That's the parameters that He gives to us out of love for us as His people. We are not prudes. We are not killjoys. We know Jesus Christ as Lord. And that changes everything. Absolutely everything. Number five, choose contentment. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. 
Not loving money is a moral choice every genuine believer must commit to make. Loving money is idolatrous. It reveals a lack of trust in God's ability to provide what we need. How do we refuse to love money? Verse 5, by choosing to be content with what we have. And here's the key, right now. That is the essential piece of it. We can find contentment with what we imagine in our fantasies would make us content. But such thinking is folly. We must choose to be content with what we have now, today, right here. If you're thinking a little bit more, this adjustment, if I can just get here, then I'll be at peace, then I'll be content. You will not be content ever if you stay in that mode. It's choosing contentment now. Ultimately, we have God. And that is always enough. The God who will never leave us or forsake us. He alone is our soul's satisfaction. C.S. Lewis said, He who has God in everything has no more than he who has God alone. And when our affections are drawn to the Lord and we know the truth about His care, we can live that way. But how can we choose contentment in God in a world that's so unpredictable, so dangerous, where I lack so much, it seems? It's in this phrase here, I will never leave you or forsake you. The believer is freed from this, the greatest fear that the soul could possibly have, that God would forsake me. All right, set that aside, he says. That's never going to happen. I will not forsake you. Remember that marriage thing? I am your husband. I will be devoted to you to the end of your days. Be at peace in my care. That's where we get it. If we're freed from that greatest of all cares, the abandonment of God, then we are freed from the fear that He would forsake us and all other fears are crushed including the fear that He would harm us or that anyone else would harm us against His will ultimately. So we can confidently say, verse 6, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? I don't think the can is can in capacity, but can in performance. What is anyone going to do against us to violate the will of the sovereign Lord for us? Now, you might say, this is kind of like a little overkill, isn't it? I mean, in support of just contentment? Well, let's remember, they didn't live in our world. Remember 1034? People came to their homes and plundered their property without any prosecution. Man could do some things to them and get, get away with it. Unlike is true in our particular setting. They could be reduced to abject poverty because they followed Christ. And having lost what was rightfully theirs, it could prove extremely difficult to be content. People have taken your things. Be content with what you have. I am in control. I will protect you. Earlier this year, three Christian families in a village in northern Laos were driven from their homes by the village chief. The chief, the one who kind of runs the show here, stood outside their homes and as they fled for safety, said, burn them down. They fled with what was in their hands of anything or their pockets and their property was consumed in the flames. They found refuge in a nearby field and found some pieces of scrap, this and that, and put together a little shelter and the people came and burned that down. And then they went to another village. And that village said, we don't want you here. Imagine those people walking from that village. Everything we own has been burned. Everything we own has been lost. we got to find somewhere to just exist when you're living in that kind of situation these words mean a lot the Lord is my helper I will not fear 
what can man do to me? Well, obviously, in some sense, a cynic could say quite a bit. Take away everything you have, reduce you to abject poverty. But remember the point. If we have God in everything, we have no more than if we have God alone. He will care for them. He is caring for them. He is providing, and He always does. No matter what trial we go through, for the Hebrew believers and for Christians in places such as Laos. And by the way, this is not a unique circumstance. The circumstances may be a bit different, but we are seeing properties seized and burned to the ground in Laos fairly routinely right now. Our brothers and sisters are losing everything. They're taking farms that, that people have farmed for generations and just saying, they're ours, you leave. And they walk out with nothing. But for the Hebrew believers, for Christians in places such as Laos, what can man do to me is a bold assertion of faith in a sovereign God. As the Apostle Paul put it, not that I'm speaking of need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. In that situation, content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He will supply. He will strengthen. So brothers and sisters in Christ, as we've considered these five imperatives, these five moral directives, May we never forget that one aspect of the molecular makeup, so to speak, of genuine Christianity is godly living. There's no substitute for it. It's not everything. There's the truth, there's the affections, but living faithfully before the Lord is utterly essential. If the head is filled with true doctrine, if the heart is filled with enthusiasm for worship, and we go on living godless lives with no interest in holiness, we're not saved. We don't know the Lord. We haven't met Him yet. Or something's at least seriously wrong that will get changed fairly soon. Because God saved us to change us. To purify us. Here in this life as we move to our total transformation in the future. There is a way to live the Christian life. It will look somewhat differently across cultural divides but only superficially so, not fundamentally so. It will look somewhat differently in some places, but there is not a separate way of living for believers in the Far East and for believers here in the West. We will apply things differently. We will live somewhat differently. Our lives might not look the same, but we serve the same Lord and His call on our life to grow in holiness and godliness is identical. Does your life, does my life reflect the saving transformation of the good news of Jesus, His saving grace in the Gospel? For those that are separated from Christ, you've not come to a place of saving faith in Him right now. There's a real danger here. And that's that you would look at that list of five things and say, well, I'm going to try harder on all of those. And somehow think that by your performance you will please God and accomplish more godliness in your life by giving yourself to it. Don't go there. Salvation from your sin does not come by you trying harder and doing a little better. It is a gift that is given to you by the entirely righteous Christ who gives you His righteousness by paying the cost of your sin. His death on the cross we learn in this book. His sacrifice for sin. That is what atones. That is what provides forgiveness. The obedience comes as we respond in joy to what He has done to save us. But do not think you can do these five things and all the other commands of Scripture in your own strength. You cannot. I cannot. But for those of us who know Christ as Savior, who know that He paid the penalty of our sin, who have received the baptism of the Spirit, the gift of salvation in Jesus, we know we are called to change. 
And we know that the Lordship of Jesus Christ works itself out in every aspect of our lives. What are we holding on to? Where do we refuse to repent? Where do we refuse to say, I'm not going to do that? That place where the Holy Spirit brings conviction is what we need to address by way of repentance, by way of obedience, and together as a church to encourage one another in authentic Christian living. It is about the truth. It is about affections for Christ. A warm heart toward that truth and His cause. And it is about holiness of life. That truth, truly embraced, will change us. May God help us. And may we help one another. Lord, we thank You for the new life that's in Jesus. And I confess to you conviction on every one of these points. Some more than others. But Lord, we fall short of your calling upon our life. We admit that. We see that. We confess our sin. And I pray, Lord, that we would leave, however, not with heads bowed in guilt and shame, but that with heads raised in joyful anticipation of what you are going to continue to do in our lives as we trust you and walk with you. I pray for anyone among us who is under particular conviction and needs to repent and change and grow. I pray, God, that you'd graciously come alongside and bless and mature and help. For each one of us, God, may we come to terms with our own sin and come to trust and walk with you in fidelity. We have no interest in striving to showcase our lives for boastful and arrogant reasons. Lord, know our hearts. But that said, I pray that Eden Baptist Church would be a place where people who come in among us say, there are people who love God there. There are people who are striving to live holy and faithful lives there. And Lord, may the beauty of those lives, which are a gift from you, may they flow from our beings to influence this world for Christ. We pray that you'd come alongside of us now and continue to accomplish that good in us. Through Christ we pray. Amen.